0: Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. G'day, everyone, and welcome to JOSPT Insights for 2024. As we prepare for a big year of JOSPT Insights interviews, we're easing you into 2024 by recapping a few of our most loved and most listened to episodes from 2023. These are wonderful chats with some of the leading clinician scientists in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation field. They're the episodes you don't want to miss, which is why we really wanted to replay them for you now. It is such a thrill to hear how much you all love the JOSPT Insights podcast thank you for all of the support. We really love making the podcast and sharing with you the thoughts of all the fantastic guests who join us on JOSPT Insights. Thanks to them. And of course, a very big thanks to all of you. Okay, here's today's episode. Does managing elbow pain leave you a bit unsure of where to start? Maybe you've got lateral elbow tendinopathy sorted, but what about managing elbow fractures and dislocations? Or are you a bit like me and all you really remember from your clinical training is to get the elbow moving as quickly as possible? Specialist physiotherapist Val Jones from the Sheffield Shoulder and Elbow Unit in the UK is on a mission to make sure the elbow is no longer the forgotten joint of the upper limb. And today, Val joins us to share practical advice and clinical pearls of wisdom that will help you feel confident about managing elbow pain. Val Jones, welcome to JOSPT Insights.
1: Well, thanks very much for inviting me to talk about my my one true passion,
0: the elbow. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Val. And today we are talking about elbow pain, as you say, your one true passion. We're talking about what causes elbow pain and how listeners might approach managing it. You've called the elbow the forgotten joint of the upper limb. Why?
1: It's the real link in the whole chain. And if you forget about it, you forget about it at your peril. Because if you don't have a decent functioning elbow, you can't place your hand in space where it needs to go to. So you can't draw the outside world into you. You can't feed yourself. You can't dress yourself. You've struggled and you can't compensate with any other joints.
0: What are the things that we really need to keep in mind when we're assessing elbow pain? When someone comes into the clinic to see you with elbow pain, where do you start?
1: First of all, I'll screen for any red flags because I think there are a few red flags that we really need to make sure that we don't miss. And then after I've, I've assessed for those red flags, I then split the elbow into quadrants. So I'll look at lateral pain, medial pain, anterior pain, posterior pain. And that helps me think about what are the possible pathologies or underlying pathologies that can give us lateral pain. So everybody thinks lateral elbow pain. It's common, uh, you know, it's lateral elbow tendinopathy, but there are lots of other things that can give you lateral elbow pain. as well. I think Shakespeare had a saying, temptation, the fiend at my elbow. And the temptation for lateral elbow pain is to say, hey, it's all tennis elbow. And there can be lots of things. It could be a chronic instability. It could be a plica. It could be an osteochondral defect, which is one of the red flags I've just alluded to.
0: We're not going to focus specifically on on the elite athlete's elbow, throwing elbow, these sorts of conditions. We are really going to focus on primary musculoskeletal conditions that people in a typical outpatient practice are likely to encounter. What are the most common elbow problems that you see in the clinic, Val? And what, what are the things that people really need to keep in mind to recognise?
1: I work in both the trauma and elective side. So I think one of the big things we see is we see lots of fractures and we see lots of dislocations. So they're one of your red flags. But I used to get pretty scared working in private practice thinking, how do I know if they've had a fracture or a dislocation? So there was a really nice paper written by Applebone that said, if you've had an acute injury such as a fall onto an outstretched hand and you're unable to extend, there's a 50% chance or more that you've had a fracture. So you then send them off to the local A&E and have an X-ray and see what's going on. With the dislocation, it might not be quite as apparent. The patient may not even realize that they've dislocated and the mechanism for injury for, for men is usually playing sports or being involved in a violent altercation. With women, the primary mechanism of dislocation is a fall from standing height. Or what I ask patients is, or what I do as soon as I see a patient is is I'll address them and look at their elbow and look for bruising. Bruising for me is a cardinal sign that something has gone absolutely haywire. Medial bruising, medial ligament injury, probable dislocation. Lateral bruising, lateral ligament injury, again, dislocation. Anterior bruising, we can talk about this later, distal biceps test. So bruising for me means they've had probably a dislocation that hasn't been picked up. But sometimes it can spontaneously reduce and the patient doesn't even know they've had one. If it's a simple elbow dislocation where they haven't had any associated fractures, I always say to the patients, even if it's two, three weeks down the line and they come and see me, did you get any bruising at the time? Yeah. Did you take any pictures? And they will show you and you can see where the bruising was and that highlights probable structure. So don't miss an elbow dislocation or an elbow fracture. Elbow dislocations, if you miss them and they're not treated appropriately, they can develop arthritic changes in a matter of weeks, months, rather than over years.
0: Where are you typically seeing that fracture line? Are we talking olecranon? Are we talking radius, humerus? Where are you seeing them?
1: Well, most of that, most elbow fractures are radial head fractures in varying degrees. You've got the Mason classification, one to four but most of them are sort of your undisplaced or minimally displaced radial head hatches. And the, the thing to do there is get it moving. But there are things that we need to do to make sure we get the best out of the patient. And it's to do the overhead mobilization position. Um, it's developed by somebody called Hotchkiss. And Hotchkiss found that if you did the overhead position, which is where nice, lie, somebody on the back, Put the hand up towards the ceiling and then get them to flex and extend in that lion position. It helps improve overall range and other studies have shown it improves overall stability because you cut out biceps going into spasm and stopping you being able to flex and extend. Make sure you've not got a block to rotation in terms of pro and supination because that might show it's displaced and they may need the help of your surgical counterparts.
0: Red flags. Can we run through the typical red flags and then what your action is, please, Val?
1: Obviously, you've got your fractures and your dislocations that we've already talked about. Look for any neurovascular problems as well. So we'll do rock, paper, scissors. It's a quick neurological examination and sensory tests. And then we'll make a thumbs up sign and sort of the O sign with the thumb and the finger. The thumb and the finger, you're looking for the anterior interosseous nerve. Can they make that okay sign that you're getting diving? Thumbs up, looking at posterior interosseous nerve. We'll also take pulses. Then after that, we will check if somebody's had a previous dislocation are they still in joint? One of the things that you can check for is looking at the alignment of the medial epicondyle, the lateral epicondyle, and the olecranon. In the normal elbow in extension, those three points should form a straight line. In 90 degrees of elbow flexion, if you put a finger on the medial epicondyle, lateral epicondyle, and olecranon, it should look like a triangle shape. And if it's not, it might show you that they're not clinically in joint because you can redislocate again within days to a few weeks after, even in a plaster cast. So it's really important to make sure that somebody's still in joint. Other things that people can miss are things like a distal biceps rupture. Distal biceps rupture, people say, oh, they're not very common. Their incidence has quadrupled over the last 10 years, and they think it's because more people are going to the gym, they're working out more. Probably steroids are, are easier to get on the black market, but also they think we're better at picking them up as well. So if you have a young, so it's usually a male injury between the ages of 40 and 60, and they feel something go, and then they get bruising. And you can do a few physical tests for those. So one of the tests that we tend to use is the hook test, where you actually put your shoulder at 90 degrees flexion, flex your elbow to 90 degrees, and turn the palm into face yourself. So if you're the patient, put your hand in front. Yeah, that's perfect. Hand in front of your face. You can get your finger as the examining finger and come from the superior aspect of the biceps tendon. And you should be able to feel it as a thick structure that you could hang a meat hook off. So that's why it's called the hook test. So your index finger, which is the palpating finger, forms forms the hook. And you look to see if it's absent, which would show you that it's really gone, or whether it's got more play in that tendon because that can be a positive sign. If you think you've got somebody who has a disc biceps rupture, that is a red flag. They need seeing sooner rather than later, and I mean within the first couple of weeks after injury by a specialist shoulder and elbow surgeon because the results of delayed repairs are much worse than an acute repair. Patients don't have to have it fixed at the end of the day, but if you don't have it fixed, then you will lose about 50% of your supination power and 30% of your flexion power. So that's a decision that a surgeon and a patient need to make together. And I say in practice, we probably see now about one or two every week in our fracture clinic. So don't miss it because a delayed repair Sometimes they won't even do them, and then that patient's lost that, lost that strength forever.
0: How hasty are you to get imaging of the elbow?
1: Well, it depends, really. I suppose what the pathology is. I mean, another thing that I really watch out for is it's youngsters that come in. Anybody's in the second decade that comes in with diffuse or laterally situated elbow pain, we presume they have an osteochondral defect. So these are the it tends to affect athletes, so you get swimmers your weightlifters, your throwers, your gymnasts, we always presume they have an osteochondral defect until proved otherwise. And then we would send them off, not for an x-ray because x-rays only show about 50% of osteochondral defects. We'd send them off for a CT. There's been a nice paper written by Sean Adriscoll recently, the Mayo Clinic, where where CTs pick them up more um, frequently than the MRIs. Now, it's really important if you do have a youngster who has an osteochondral defect in their elbow, they have to stop sport completely. It's complete rest. If you think, I'll just try and carry on, I'll just train a little bit, the chances if you're a professional sort of level athlete or high level athlete, if you return into sport are only 50%. So you need to catch them early before they develop these loose bodies and things, keep them off sport. So with somebody like that, we'd be investigating them pretty quickly.
0: Well, let's move on to treating elbow pain. And I think one of the things I remember from physio school, and there really wasn't that much in my physio training on the elbow specifically. One of the things that sticks in my mind, though, is get the elbow moving early because it gets stiff. What are your top tips for managing elbow pain?
1: Well, I think that's that's the one thing you should do because they've shown that if you immobilise an elbow for more than three me- weeks, no matter how it looks, whether it looks like a humpy dumpy elbow, it's being smashed into. It's any longer than uh, three weeks of mobilization and it's it's gone. But there are, there are some other studies, newer studies going out, where it shows that if you wait sort of 72 hours, it can affect the fibrosis within the elbow. So it's sooner is better than later. So what we tend to do is certainly if it's been internally fixed or a fracture is stable, and certainly for all our dislocations, we get them moving in a safe zone. So we have a very close relationship with our surgeons where we know what our safe zone is so say for a, a simple elbow dislocation our safe zone might be from 90 through to full flexion and we gradually increase the safe zone over a period of about three to six weeks it's also important to get them moving in that overhead position because that improves mobility but it also improves stability it reduces your chance of redislocation, and it compresses the joint makes it more stable
0: we touched on it earlier on, but let's come back to exactly what you what you're doing there.
1: You lie flat on your back. You point your hand up to the ceiling, so you're in ninety degrees of shoulder flexion. And basically, what you do then is is that would be your position of extension. And I give the patient then anatomical landmarks of flexion. Say, so can you touch your thumb to your forehead? Can you t- when they can do that? Can you then? touch your thumb to your chin and they extend in between so it's a constant flexion and extension movement. So hand up to the ceiling, thumb down to the chin, hand up to the ceiling, thumb down to the chin. When they can do that, I'll then use the sternum as the next kind of of anatomical landmark so the patients can assess their progress as well as we can see it as well. So they'll spend just minutes in that sort of position. The other thing we need to talk about is putting your hands on the patient or giving them a tuber grip or elastic bandage or some sort of pressure garments wear whilst they're in that position because the elbow I'm afraid it's a bit like Homer Simpson, it's really stupid. I love it, it's lovable, just like Homer, but it's really stupid. It's proprioceptively vacant. It gets most of its proprioceptive awareness from from cutaneous receptors, there's hardly any joint receptors because probably the shoulder and the hand got to the proprioceptor shop first and left the elbow at the back. So there's very little in the terms of joint proprioception, but skin, it gets most of it from there. So if you just got hands or a tubi grip on, it lets the patient and lets the brain know where the elbow is in space and you get much better range. So all our patients get sent hey with a tubi grip or an elbow sleeve, along with a few other things as well. So that that position is great. And you can also grip in that position. When you grip, you switch on your wrist flexors and wrist extensors, which are the medial and lateral dynamic stabilizers of the elbow. So they might make a grip but leave the thumb free and then they just exercise to their heart's content in that position.
0: That's great. So supine, elbow up, uh, shoulder in 90 degrees flexion, and then you are simply flexing and extending that elbow. And
1: you can use your thumb to touch that anatomical to muscle The other thing
0: you can do is, in that position, you could put your your hand on your head, and you can actually
1: practice sort of palm against your forehead, and then dorsum against. So you do pro and supination. So don't forget pro and supination as well. Patient spend all of the all of the time sort of exercising in that position. Don't exercise people standing upright or lying on the back with their arms down by the side. Because there's EMG data to show that the biceps contracts and it just makes the problem worse. You're not going to get that extension. And if you've got a weight in the hand in those positions, the biceps contracts exponentially. So, unless you've got something like an olecranon fracture, a triceps rupture, or an operation where they've had split triceps, all of our patients are given the overhead position.
0: Dampen down that biceps. Activation. Do whatever you can to calm that biceps down. Heterotopic ossification is super common in the elbow, and it's when you get bony deposits after
1: trauma. And it's the most primary side for heterotopic ossification is brachialis muscle because it attaches into the blends of the capsule at the front of the elbow. And what they have found out now is that it's probably due to immobilization that you get heterotopic ossification. So, therefore, there's absolutely no excuse. So, I'm afraid it's a myth that needs to be debunked. Get them moving, get them moving
0: early as well. I want to come back to this idea of hands on to give the cutaneous input. I think a lot of people's minds might go to hands on manual therapy, mobilizing the joint. Let's talk a little bit about mobilizing manual therapy and where it might or might not fit into managing elbow pain.
1: I actually use the MWM, say, in my fracture and my dislocation patients because. If you think about it, the position I've just described, is the position that you were taught to do your MWMs in. So they're in that overhead position anyway. And then by just doing putting your hands on the patient, you're going to increase that, pro- that cutaneous input, that proprioceptive awareness. So I think they kind of like the MWMs. And I don't think it's because we change your joint position or anything fancy like that. I think it's just because you're putting a large amount of cutaneous input in. And so the brain thing, I know where you are. Oh, yeah, I remember you. So I do use the mws but sometimes I'll just put my hands around the patient's sort of distal, humorous, proximal radius and all that, and just be quite firm and, and just say, right, get moving. And they like it. They feel more confident. That's something else I've got to mention as well about confidence and thoughts and attitudes and beliefs because we always thought, you know, with shoulders, back pain, everything else, fear, avoidance, beliefs were important. Got to deal with their head just as much as we got to deal with somebody's elbow. It's so important. Reassurance. It's going to hurt, but that's okay. This is a safe position. It's not all going to fall apart again. Use your hands for little tasks because if your hand's moving, your elbow's moving.
0: Again, really great advice, Val, and it leads us nicely into progressing beyond the range of motion and simple strength kinds of tasks into more functional and building that rehabilitation program on. So how do you blend that progressing the program, building the strength, and also balancing the fear avoidance and the confidence side of things?
1: I think, first of all, move them on quickly enough you know, when they've got about, after about four to six weeks, when they've got about 90% of their pre-injury range, hopefully, then you can start doing more of your resistance-based work. But give them exercises that are contextually relevant for the patient. So if the patient's a tennis player, put a racket in the hand or put a ball if it's the other hand, or if they're a plasterer, give them a plasterer's float and start involving the kinetic chain. Because the brain remembers those functional patterns of movement, it doesn't remember isolated muscle activation. So you won't just see me there with patient lying on the bed, even from day one, we'll be going into the gym. If it was a footballer, doing a throw-in with like a soccer ball overhead is the perfect overhead. You can do bilateral movements as well. And there's some lovely work that just came out about graded motor imagery. If you add graded motor imagery into an elbow rehab um, setting, it improves your range of movement than if you just do exercise alone. So our patients get left-right discrimination, two-point discrimination. We play the sock game, which is where it's basically stereognosis, where you put your hand into a sock and I've got my hand in another sock. So there's an element of competition and gamesmanship. So it's fun. First one to find the wine cork. First one to find the key. First one to find the domino, you know, and it's, it, we just play games right from day one or I'll give them balloons. tell them to stop focusing on moving the elbow so much so I give them a balloon in the hands in the overhead position and so say turn the balloon or push the balloon up towards the ceiling, bring the balloon back down to the head. They're focusing on the balloon, rather than they are their actual elbow.
0: And again, I think is a nice way to build in that confidence and keep people moving without, as you say, really focusing on the impairment.
1: And I think it's also being re- realistic about timeframes. A lot of our patients don't understand fracture healing and also ligament healing, so they think, well, I should be better by now, and then they start to worry. So it's right from day one, remembering, right, it's going to be six weeks for soft callus, three months for hard callus, or three months for for your repair to sort of become more stable. So all that time we say, we're say reiterating that because they'll forget because they're stressed, they're frightened, they're in pain. We don't know what they've retained for one session. So I'll often say, when you go home this evening, what are you going to tell your nearest and dearest? And I think it's also being patient. When you look at, say, after a complex fracture dislocation, 90% of patients achieve their functional range or what they're going to by about six months. But another 10% take anything up to a year. So it's being patient and saying you're in this for the long haul. Slow and
0: steady wins the rest. How do you monitor progress?
1: I think, first of all, find out what's normal for the patient. I think, you know, with normally it's it's really useful. You can assess right and compare it with left in the non-athletic population. But we know in the athletic population, that if you're a thrower, you have less range on the throwing side than you do the non-throwing side. So they'd have less flexion and extension, but they'd be stronger, probably about 10 to 15% stronger. So sometimes if you've got a coach where you're dealing with an athlete, it's really useful to know what their pre sort of season screening data was. But we will use things we know that to cover most activities of daily living, you need at least 120 degrees through range motion. So I would say a patient hasn't got functional range until they've got an arc of 120 degrees, flesh and extension, and about 100 degrees through range pro and supination. So we would measure range, but we would also be looking at things like grip strength. There's lots of great stuff out there for the normative data, but for age and sex stratified grip strength. So my sort of little handheld dynamometer works a treat so we can look at things like biceps, triceps, handheld grip. I'll also look at Margie Olds from New Zealand has done a great sort of battery test for return to sports. So I nick hers, you know, when you put a, a weighted medicine ball and you should be able to do, 90% with your non-dominant that you should be able to do with your dominant because you have to do an overhead push and then an abduction that's 90 degrees. And, and the wide balance test, upper in balance test, We use all of those for our athletic population. So range, strength, and then your battery of tests before you see that they're ready to return back to sports.
0: We'll put some resources and links in the show notes for folks to refer to. We'll also link to some previous JOSPT Insights episodes on lateral elbow pain and Some throwing-related topics as well, so folks can feel like they're getting a holistic view of the elbow and the upper limb. Val, it's been such a pleasure hearing from you today. Thanks for bringing the elbow back to the front of mind, and I'm with you on this on this quest to make sure that the elbow doesn't get relegated to the forgotten joint of the upper limb.
1: Don't forget the elbow, folks, because it always used to be called the unforgiving joint because it didn't respond very well. But I think it's just been unloved. If you love the elbow, if you give it a hug now, because you know what that does proprioceptively, it's going to respond to being hugged. So instead of hugging a tree today, go out and hug an elbow.
0: You heard it here first, folks, hug an elbow. Val Jones, thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.